If you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, you know, it, I guess it was Wednesday last week, I had someone come up to me who shall remain nameless, who heard that I had been preaching. He came up to me and he said, I heard you're preaching on Sunday. And, you know, if you've been in church circles more than a day, you never really know how to take that, right? I heard you preaching on Sunday. I, I said, yes, I am. And he said, I bet it's like some really hard-to-find minor prophet in the Old Testament, knowing my track record preaching from minor prophets. I said, no, it's going to be out of the New Testament. But I didn't really have the heart to tell him that I originally planned to preach out of Micah, chapter 7. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, I was preparing for Micah, chapter 7, but over the course of the last couple of weeks, I've had no less than about five people come to me and admit that they're struggling with assurance of their faith. Assurance of salvation. And either they're just struggling with doubts in general, or there was one in particular that said the Holy Spirit had convicted them of some habitual sin that they had been in, and they thought, how can I be doing this as a, as a Christian? And they were wrestling with that a bit. You know, there's a common theme among most people who do struggle with assurance and the problem is that they're grounding the basis of their assurance of the faith on something wrong. It's usually on an inward feeling rather than on the object of their faith. And how many of us at least have had one time in our salvation experience, our journey towards sanctification in Christ Jesus, where we have not doubted or struggled a little bit with assurance? See, at some point, it's a, sh a subtle shift. At some point, our eyes get taken off of the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ as the assurance and basis of our faith, and it was placed on something that we must do. And then we wrestle with these feelings that come up because obviously we're imperfect human beings. We're on the road to progressive sanctification, being more like Jesus Christ. We dip a little bit and we struggle a little bit because we're human beings and we're still wrestling with the sin nature within us. And we hit those moments in our life and we struggle with assurance. Am I doing enough? Did I mess it up somehow? And then at that point, salvation becomes a, a tit-for-tat transaction in which God is good for his end of the bargain as long as we do ours. And what do we have here? We have religion rather than a faith in Almighty God. Well, see, the book of Hebrews speaks very, uh, very clearly to this issue. Now, let's get some context before we really start reading. Hebrews is a book full of warnings, and encouragements. In fact, very strong warnings and very strong encouragements. Now, a little bit of audience participa participation here. To whom do you believe that the book of Hebrews was written? Hebrews. Very good. See your Bible scholars already. So we can fast forward through most of my message. 
It was true. The, the author of the book of Hebrews, and we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. We have some strong possibilities. Some think that it's Paul. I think they have some good arguments there. There are others who think it could be Barnabas or even Apollos. Uh, Martin Luther thought it could have been Apollos. It doesn't really matter because the point is that they were writing it to a very specific group of people, Jewish Christians. Now, there were probably a mixed audience involved here, where you had Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, although I would venture a guess that many of those non, non-Christian Jewish people probably thought that they were Christian. And they were kind of into two camps here. Uh, they were wrestling with this because the Jewish people had just been going from their Judaistic faith where it's always been about faith, right? That's what, even from back in Abraham. It's, he was declared righteous by his faith. But things kind of shifted for them in their mind and their whole hope of salvation was based upon works. Offering the right sacrifice at the right time. uh, Celebrating the holy feast. Keeping the right attire and how I conduct myself and going to temple and going to synagogue and whatnot. And there was a whole sect of Jews called the Pharisees that that took that to a a whole nother level. And now these Jewish people got saved. They realized that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And they struggled a little bit. Where's the basis of my assurance? In Judaism, I would offer something and I would do something and I would trust that that would be enough. But now with Christ, I don't really have that. And then you had some non-Christian Jewish people that were mixed into this church a little bit that were struggling with abandoning their faith, going back to Judaism. Can the Messiah truly be trusted? Would be the question that they would ask. And this passage speaks directly to these groups. Now, before we really dive into the first verse, I want you to look at verse 19. The very first, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Why do boats need anchors? So you don't drift, so you don't get tossed, that you don't wreck somewhere. There is nothing more troubling or insecure than being tossed on a sea of doubt. And that's why we need an anchor, something to give us confidence and assurance of our faith. And that's the point of this passage. In fact, we've got four points coming out of this passage. If you have notes with you, you'll see that we are sealed. Our hope of salvation is sealed by the unbreakable purpose of God. It's secured by the unchangeable purpose of God and guaranteed by the impeccable person of God and founded in the work of the high priest of God. So let's start with our first point. Salvation is sealed by the unbreakable promise of God. Let's look at verse 13 now. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Let's talk about that. That little word at the first part of the verse, for. For is connecting the main point of that verse with the main point of the verse prior. In fact, what's interesting about this passage in verses 13 through 20 and is that it kind of wraps up an argument that began in chapter 5, but About chapter 5, verse 11, he interjects, he interrupts his argument with a warning. 
a warning not to fall away from their faith. And I'm convinced that he was, you know, uh, focusing on those, those Jewish people who were thinking about abandoning their faith and going back to Judaism. But let's look at what this verse is connecting. So look, look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full, what is that word? Assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is a really interesting point. He is introducing a brand new concept. He begins chapter 5 talking about the priesthood, uh, of what Jesus would do as a priest and the high priest of Israel. He interjects his argument with warnings about a falling away to back to that stuff. And then he comes back and introduces a new concept about assurance of our faith based upon those who inherit the promises. Isn't that the key? You, and we'll see this as we move on, are an inheritor of the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, let's look at this promise to Abraham. Now, this passage here, especially in verse 14, he kind of takes one little part of the promise and, and quotes it back here. So let's actually look at the actual promise given in Genesis chapter 22 and verse, let's start with verse 16. Genesis 22 and verse 16. So I, I guess I am in the Old Testament after all. It just happens, I guess. All right, so Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17. And so the, or 16. So let's look at the context of this. Okay, Isaac is born. Isaac is probably a, an older teen, maybe a young adult at this point. And this is the promised one. This is the one that Abraham had been waiting for many, many years for. And God shows up one day and says, I want you to go take him to that mountain up there and sacrifice him. I want you to slaughter him. Kill him for me. And so he takes him up there, believing the whole time that God knew what he was doing. He takes the knife. He raises the knife up just as he was about to plunge it into, into his son Isaac. God stops him and says, I know you believe me. I see what you've done. The whole picture is pointing to the sacrifice of Christ, the father offering up his son for the sacrifice of sin. He turns his attention to the thicket. He sees a ram caught there that would become the sacrifice. And now we have verse 16. This is what God says. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And here's our key. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, who is the seed that shall bless all the families of the earth? It's Jesus Christ. You see Paul talk about that, and you don't have to turn there, but it's in uh, Galatians, uh, in the book of Galatians 3. He says the seed is Christ. Now notice he didn't say seeds, plural. He said seed, the one seed, the one that God promised in the Garden of Eden to Eve. When the fall of man happened, God was pronouncing the consequences of sin that would enter into the world, and just when all hope is lost, God said, but 
there was a seed coming from the woman who would crush the serpent's head even though the serpent would strike his heel. That was the very first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ would come to completely destroy the works of Satan. And the striking the heel is the picture of Christ dying on the cross. And then God made the picture real because remember Adam and Eve, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Anybody seen the fig leaf? They're flimsy and they tear and they're about that big. Um, so God said, that's not good enough. Let me explain further. He killed an animal in the garden of Eden just to clothe Adam and Eve's guilt. You know, this passage in 22 is looking forward to Jesus Christ. But it's actually a reaffirmation of what God has already done. So look back at chapter 15. We're going to tie this all together to assurance, I promise you. Okay, Genesis 15. Okay, so let's look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no, Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born of my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as what? Righteousness. Abram believed it was righteous. But then look at verse 8. Very comforting passage to me. So Abram believed, right? So the promise is given. And this was really actually another ratification of a promise made in Genesis 12 where God says, I'm going to do all these things. And so you get to 15 and he reaffirms his promise that he's made. And he believes it's counted to him as righteous. And then verse 8, he said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Do you see what Abram is asking for here? I believe in you. I need a little assurance. I need something to anchor my soul. And I won't go through the whole thing, but in the rest of the chapter, God said, all right, I got you. This is what I'm going to do for you. I want you to get a bunch of animals, oxen and turtle doves and all these other things, and I want you to split them in half. Now, that was a very common thing when you were going to make a covenant back in these days. It wasn't just like what we do where we sign on the dotted line and the notary just kind of stamps it and we have a half a million ways to try to get out of our promise. This was a serious thing when you made an actual covenant with somebody. Took an animal and you split them right down the center and you put the pieces on either side. And then when that was accomplished, the two parties making the covenant would walk in between these bloody pieces that are laying on the ground. They would make their covenants with each other. They would shake on it. And it was them saying that may this happen to me if I break my covenant with you. And Abram knew what was going on when God asked him to do this because it was a common thing to do in the Old Testament. But what I want you to see now is verse 17. It came about when the sun had set and that it was very dark 
And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, where was Abram there? We didn't mention it. A few verses uh, before that, God put Abraham to sleep. And so here's God now, walking in the pieces, putting himself on the hook for what he had promised to give Abraham. Isn't that an amazing passage? It shows that there's an unbreakable promise that God has made. He said, Abraham said, I believe you, God. I trust that you're going to bring about your promise that in my seed, that one is coming who is going to bless all the families of the earth. I believe it. I really do. But give me some kind of assurance because I know I'm going to struggle with this thing. And Abraham did struggle with this. There were times, he was a man. He struggled with doubts. He struggled with sin. He would oftentimes lie about his wife saying, she's my sister because I'm afraid that you're going to kill me. He struggled with doubt. He tried to make God's plan happen ahead of God's timing. But yet he didn't stop being the one God chose to fulfill his promise. And he promised, and that would have been good enough, but he made a covenant. Now look back at Hebrews. Chapter 6. I want you to see verse 15. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So, the author of Hebrews is saying, people of God, imitate Abraham. This call to give you assurance of your faith, it's not based on her human virtue. God made the promise to Abram. Abram didn't do anything. He just believed it, and it was theirs. It was righteous. God made a promise He sealed it with an oath. We're going to see that in just a second. But the promise is, but the the hope of assurance is grounded in the promise of God, not in what Abraham did. Be like Abraham. Abraham's faith was grounded and established on the word of God. Thus, what was pledged by God fueled his patience and his assurance. People, we cannot put grounding of our assurance on ourselves, we can't put it on our work. We can't put it on our emotions. How many times has your emotions fluctuated this week? Some more than others, I'm sure. But how many times have they fluctuated? Today you feel hot for the Lord. Tomorrow you feel a little lukewarm or cold. Today you're, you're on fire and you're doing things and you're serving uh, and you're reading your Bible and you just can't handle it. I mean, it's taking so much of it in and the next day you've oversleep and then you don't get to it for a few days. If we're crowning the assurance of our faith in those things, of course we have a rusty anchor now. And a rusty anchor chain is about to break. And we get tossed into a sea of doubt because our assurance was based on me. When for Abraham, it was based on God. He said, I believe, God. Give me some assurance. God said, all right. My promise not good enough? I'll give you some assurance. He gave him a covenant. And then in 22, he gave him an oath on top of the covenant. Do you see a pattern here that God is doing? Trust me. I'm the one who makes the promise. I'm the one who's going to keep the promise, not You, Abraham, didn't do anything whatsoever to gain his assurance. He had to put his trust in the Lord. 
And that's that first part here of Hebrews chapter 6. He's saying, I know we we want you to be patient, you who inherit the promises, because you're going to be tossed in a sea of doubt. So here's where your assurance lies. It lies in the unbreakable promise of God. A promise is only good as the person who gives it. Am I right? You know people that have come to you and made a promise to you, and you knew right away, oh, they're not going to keep that promise. Right? Am I the only one who's noticed that? <laughs> Maybe I have been <laughs> one who has given a promise, and the person thinking, oh, he's not going to keep good on that one. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. How good is God? He is the king of glory. His word is established and firm. He made a promise to Abram, and then he ratified that promise with a covenant. And then he ratified his covenant with another oath. And then he says, he swore it on himself because there's no one greater than him. It reminds me of when you go to courts. Not anymore, but in the past, what did you do when you took the witness stand? You who watch, I don't know, maybe like Matlock or something like that, old court shows, and a witness takes the stand. And a witness is coming to testify about the truth of something. And the bailiff walks up to that person and they used to put a Bible out and you put your hand on the Bible and the other hand up in the air and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We don't do that anymore. We just say, I swear or affirm, if I don't want to swear, that I'll tell the truth. Yeah, that's great. You're swearing upon yourself and we have no idea if you're trustworthy or not. Most are not who take the stand in courts. But God himself was that witness. There's no one greater for me to testify to. We used to put our hand on scripture and swear to God that I'm going to tell the truth because he's the greatest and I'm accountable to him and all the judgments that come with it if I'm going to bald-faced lie in front of you. And God himself says, I'm going to make an oath. Wait, I'm the greatest. I swear upon myself and I can be trusted. So our assurance can't be on us. I can't even be, I can't even know if I'm going to keep my promises from one year to the next. I think, oh, you're being hard on yourself. How many of us have uh, made a New Year's resolution? That's a promise you've made to yourself. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. And we, we, we get really creative with those declarations, don't we? This is what I'm going to do. And you have a little plan to do it and carry it out. You're making a promise on yourself. And about day five or six, you know, we've kind of gone off the beaten path. Or we have forgotten we made it in the first place, right? We can't trust ourselves, so why are we looking for assurance in ourselves? Look at assurance upon the one who swore to do this and accomplish it. Remember, you are the inheritors. By faith in Christ, you are the inheritors of the promise that God made to Abraham. That's a staggering thing to think about. Now, I, was a, I came to Christ when I was... Uh, in between my fifth and sixth grade years in the summertime. I was first in my family to make a profession of faith in Jesus. And I hounded my mother to death about taking me to church. And she, we went to a small uh, church in town and, and she was okay with it because it didn't have a big cross and it met in a community center and it felt better for her, right? She came to Christ afterwards, so I don't want to be too hard there. But I remember being in a children's ministry session and we used to sing a little song. It was called Father Abraham. Y'all remember that song? Father Abraham had many sons, I'm not going to sing it, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I had no idea what I was singing when I was a kid. I didn't, but I was singing truth. 
By faith in Jesus Christ, I inherited the promise that God made to Abraham. God said, I will multiply your seed as the stars in the sky. I want you to go out and count them. Can you count them? Well, no. If you've ever been on a dark night, no artificial light, especially on a hill or a mountain, you'll see more stars than you thought imaginable. And that's what God was doing with Abraham. Count them. Not only did Abraham have genetic seed, physical seed, he has spiritual seed. All of us by faith in Christ. If you are here by faith in Christ, you know that there was a moment in your life when all of a sudden the gospel made sense. You saw Christ for the first time and desired him. You needed him. God saved me, forgive me. He gave you the gift of faith. You inherit that promise. Perhaps you have not done that. Perhaps you're just curious a little bit about this faith that we profess. Trust that God is good for his word. Call upon him while he is near, while he may be found. And you too will have Father Abraham. But if that wasn't good enough, though, Hebrews chapter 6 continues. So let's look at verse 17 as we begin our next point, that our hope of salvation is secured by the unchangeable purpose of God. So look at verse 17. In the same way. All right, stop. <laughs> we got to take this step by step. In what same way? In the same way that God gave assurance to Abraham and to those of the heirs of the promise, in the same way now, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Okay, back up to 17. So in the same way, okay, by ratifying things with oaths and making covenants and giving Abraham assurance, he wants you to have assurance. He wants to show it to you even more than he wanted to show it to Abram. Did you catch that in the text? He said, desiring even more to show to those who are inheriting salvation or inheriting the promise. So God makes the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He does it again in Genesis 15. He actually does it again in 17, 18, 22, and throughout really the book of Genesis to all the patriarchs of Israel. I think he's trying to drive a point home. He really wanted Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to understand the unchangeableness and the security of the promise. But he wants that even more for you. I love that passage there. Even more for you. He gave that oath for those who are inheriting the promise. So when you read Genesis chapter 22 and you see God swearing the oath, put yourself in that text. You inherit that promise, so you're there. You are right there in a spiritual sense. You can see and hear God say, all the families of the earth will be blessed and you're one of them. By faith in Christ, you are now inherited of the promise, and that promise cannot break, and my purpose cannot break or die in you. Here's the oath. That oath just wasn't for Abraham. The oath is for you. And it's the purpose that can't be broken or changed. What can change God's purposes? I really want to find someone who can explain that to me. Now, I alluded to this a little while ago, but the purpose and the promise was about salvation through Christ Jesus. When did God come up with that idea? In eternity past. 
Before time began, he planned redemption. That's why Jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth, we're talking about eternity past. Before time itself, God had the purpose to save mankind, to have a promise and have inheritors of that promise. Then you get to Genesis 3.15. Just mention that. After sin enters the world, and God makes the promise of redemption through the seed of the woman. That's the first time we actually see the plan of redemption beginning to happen. It happened long before in eternity. But in time now, where we humans live, we see it happen. And so every successive generation, it's really interesting. So you had the line of Cain. You have Cain and Abel. Abel dies, of course. And then you have Cain and then Seth. And the line of Cain becomes corrupt and sinful, and it just, it's a mess. I mean, it's polygamous and all kinds of murders and crazy stuff going on the line of Cain. And then you have the line of Seth, and you track the line of Seth in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and you see that they're waiting for the seed to come, the one that was promised to Eve. You see the names. I mean, Noah was named because the Lord will give us some relief from all of this. I mean, they were looking forward to the coming of the seed. But the problem was is that mankind was so wicked at that point, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. So God wipes out mankind with a flood, preserving a righteous few, a righteous remnant, who were inheriting the promise from Genesis 3.15. And then you fast forward to Abram. Abram wasn't just this really special guy, not that we know of at least. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur. Do you like to live in a city called Ur? And it's in modern-day Iraq. Ur of the Chaldees. And, and, you know, it was a polytheistic society. They had a whole bunch of gods, but each city-state kind of had their own little chief deity. And in Ur, they were moon worshippers. Abram was a moon worshiper, most likely. They have a big ziggurat. You can see the ruins of it to this day where they dedicated their lives to the moon. To the moon god. And there's Abram doing his thing, whatever that was, worshiping the moon, living his life. And God shows up one day and says, Hey, Abram, I'm God. Nice to meet you. No, not, not the moon god, the real one, the one that talks, the one that sees, the one that can. I'm, I'm God. I want you to pack up your stuff and I want you to turn off the GPS. And I want you to start walking. And when you get to where I want you to be, I'll let you know. All right, now, so that's the, the new Brian translation. It's a paraphrase, obviously. But that's ultimately what God did, did he not? He showed up to Abram, who knew nothing about God whatsoever, and said, you. I choose you, Abram. I want you. I want you to be the one who produces the seed that I promised to Eve. Do You see how God's purpose of redemption now is unbroken? It began in eternity past. It breaks into time where we live. It goes to Eve. We survive through the flood. And now we get to Abram. And he says, you now are that next step in my purpose of redemption. Wasn't anything overly special about Abram? He had to pick up his stuff and move. He trusted that God. And you believe that faith? You all of a sudden hear from a God that you never knew of before. And these people knew a lot. Well, they didn't know them because they're not real, but they were acquainted with a multitude of gods. And here comes this one God and says, I'm real. You're the one I choose. It wasn't like Abraham did something beforehand. 
He didn't walk forward in an aisle after like 15 verses of just as I am and pledged his life. And therefore, because of that, God said, all right, I'll pick you now. He just came to Abram out of the blue and said, you are now part of the purpose that I have for mankind. And he picks up his family, convinces his wife this is a good idea too. So he must have been persuasive. And they moved all the way to the promised land. So now fast forward to Israel. So God promised Abram, surely I will multiply your seed. There'll be stars of the sky and sands of the seashore. I mean, there's this be a lot of people here, a lot of kids. Abraham, one child. And one child had two. And we know of Jacob, at least, he had 12. And then out of those 12, they had kids and so on and so forth. And fast forward a few hundred years, and now you have a population of people from the line of Abraham that was so large and so prosperous that the king of Egypt said, we need to enslave these people. We need to make them work for us. We got to control these people. God brings them out. Now, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, you've been seeing and hearing Pastor Scott walk through the book of Exodus. I encourage you to come out to that. And he, from miraculous works, he brings Israel out of, of Egypt into the promised land that God told Abraham. And so now the fulfillment of the promise is really kicking up steam here. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Israel, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You weren't great. I didn't choose you because you were great. What anything special about you? You were slaves in Egypt. You weren't numerous, so numerous that I had to pick you because it would have made sense. It wasn't that you were prosperous. You were slaves. I chose you because I wanted to choose you. Do you get that point now? He chose you. If you're here by faith, he chose you because he wanted to choose you. Not because you were anything special. Not because you can work your emotions up into a frenzy. Not because you could stay consistent with doing something. Not because you prayed the prayer the right way, whatever that means. He chose you because he wanted to. Because he decided from eternity past, you were worth choosing. And that worth was what he assigned to you. He loves you. You're part of this purpose that God began. And that purpose will not end. It cannot be broken. He says in Jeremiah 51 and verse 29, every purpose of the Lord shall be performed. Isaiah 14, 24, surely as have I thought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Psalm 33, 11, the purpose of God stands forever. Israel went through all kinds of times, good times and bad times, worshiping the Lord, falling away, judgment, captivity, all the while God preserving his unchangeable plan. He chose Israel to be the nation that would produce the one who would come eventually to crush the serpent's head. And not even Israel's unbelief could stop the purpose of God. You had all kinds of empires conquer them and try to take them out. Whether it was Assyria or Babylon or Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, they couldn't be stopped because when the time was right, Jesus was born who would come to take away sin in our lives. He said, well, what about me? Are you sure that in the heirs of this promise? I am sure. Are you sure? Turn to Ephesians. Let's be really sure. Ephesians chapter 1. 
I love this passage. I almost wanted to preach this one too. Maybe Pastor Scott should give me a second shot. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's start at verse 3. Because I want to make sure you see yourself in God's unchangeable purpose of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 3. Follow with me. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing. I love when people ask for blessings. You got them. Every spiritual blessing you can imagine. It's already yours, okay? Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, what? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen by God before time itself began. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. You were already in his mind, planned and chosen in the economy of redemption. You are part of the purpose of God. And man, it hasn't failed yet. Let's keep going. Uh, Yeah, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5. He predestined us. There's another four-choosing word. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. I'm going to stop there for a sake of time. Where are your works in this? I don't see them anywhere in here. Where are your emotions and your feelings and feeling strong and on fire for the Lord and cold for the... Where is that in here? It's not there. Because this is a commentary of what God did before you even existed. Before your parents were born, your grandparents, and so on and so forth. Before time began, this is the commentary of our lives. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that God's promises and his purpose cannot be changed? It can't be thwarted. This is part, this is the why he wanted to make even more sure. We saw that in verse, or uh, Hebrews chapter 6. He said, even more. Okay, he made the, the oath and the promise to Abraham. But I want to show you even more how serious this is. Let's go back to the very, very beginning, eternity past. You're there. In the mind of God, choosing you before you could do anything. Why? Because he wanted to. And what God wants, God gets. It's in the job description of being God. If God could break his promise, if God's purposes can change, he no longer is God. He's one of us. Our purposes, how many times have you come up with a plan and that plan was completely upended almost all the time, right? I mean, that's what distinguishes God from human beings. His unchangeableness. His promises that never fail in the oath that he made. Don't rest your assurance on yourself. Rest it on him. That's where it belongs. But we have more to go here in Hebrews. Rapidly running out of time. 
Let's look at um, verse 18. Our next point is that our hope of salvation is guaranteed by the impeccable person of God. Has anybody ever been a guarantor on a contract or a loan or something like that? A guarantor, they wanted you to guarantee the loan. Yeah, okay, so as an attorney, I advise you, and I'm not your attorney, but I'm giving you some free advice, don't ever be a guarantor on a loan, okay? Because that'll come back to bite you, right? When you're a guarantor to something, right, it means you're on the hook for it. So whoever it is can default on everything, and then they come after you, right? But yet, this is where it works to our advantage, that God's personhood, who he is, as a God, is now the guarantee of all the things that he's been doing in our life. Look at verse, um, yeah, let's look at verse 18. So the two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? The first one is in verse 17, the unchangeableness of his purpose. Okay, that's the one unchangeable things. So he's trying to make it even more sure for you. So he's giving you two unchangeable things. The first one is the unchangeableness of his purpose. The second one, it is impossible for God to lie. This goes to his character. It goes to who he is. His person, who he is, his character, his attributes, they do not change. They can't change. Again, if they did, he would no longer be God. It's impossible for him to lie. Why? Because he's truth. Jesus himself said in John 17, 17, he was praying. He said, Lord, sanctify them, meaning the disciples, and then eventually those who had become disciples of the disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. With a capital T, folks. He just doesn't tell the truth. That's us, right? We tell the truth because we contrast it to telling a lie. That's when you know somebody's telling the truth because we contrast it to telling a lie. That's not a God's economy at all. He just doesn't tell the truth. He is the truth. Everything he says it's true because it's who he is. That's his character. He's impeccable. There's nothing evil in him whatsoever. I know some of you may have uh, come up in some more liturgical or maybe a little bit more um, conservative, reformed traditions. You have catechisms. And sometimes you have kids go through catechism a little bit. And the first question is always, who is the first and chiefest being? And the answer is God is the first and the chiefest being. He's the absolute everything. He's the reason why it all exists. This is what makes him so trustworthy. He does not change. His promises don't change. His purposes don't change. And his character doesn't change. So when your assurance of faith becomes an issue in your life, we cast our attention on the one who does not change. That's our God. Not on us. My character changes. Does your character change? It should. Right? Shouldn't it? That was a yes question, definitely. Your character should and must change when you get saved. Because God doesn't want you to stay the way you are. Right? We get saved. And as Pastor Scott is so keen on producing that little graft of our, a graph of our progressive sanctification. So we get saved here. This is our life. This is Jesus. And we're on the track through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and through um, uh, the means of grace to be working our way up to be more conformed to the image of Christ. We just read that in Ephesians chapter 1. 
He predestined us to be like Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the goal for our lives. We change, we must change. God never changes, he has no need for change. The first actual name that God announced to Moses was, I am. Moses goes to the burning bush. You know, burning bushes were a common thing in, in the wilderness, especially a, wilderness, a, a windy deserty kind of place. It's very dry. Winds would blow all around the Sinai Peninsula area. It still does to this day. And you have these dead, dry bushes everywhere. It would not have been uncommon to see a bush on fire. But something unique caught this to Moses. I see this thing's on fire, but it's not burning up. Let me go check this out. <laughs> yeah, I would too. Walked up to him, and then God speaks through the bush. He appears through the bush. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And then he calls Moses, you're the one I have chosen to lead my people out of captivity. And then Moses then launches into this big diatribe of why God chose wrong. I can't speak well. I don't know what to say. I'm this, I'm that. You know, it's kind of like the same excuses that we give pastors when they ask us to be involved in ministry. <laughs> oh, I just like I have the time. I'm just not, I'm not gifted that way. Um, you know, let me pray about it first, and, which usually means no, we know that. Uh, but here's Moses doing the same thing that we do, right? He's giving God all kinds of excuses as to why God chose wrong. And God kind of humored him a little bit. He said, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do, okay? Throw your rod on the ground. It's going to turn into a snake. Pick it up. It's going to be back a rod. You're going to show these great things because, Moses, it's not your power. It's mine, right? And then he finally gets, I'm just not the right man for the job. I can't even speak. All right, I got a plan for that too. Aaron. He's going to be the one that's going to speak. You're going to be like God, and Aaron's going to be like your prophet, right? You're going to whisper the words that I give you into Aaron's ear, and he's going to speak that out. Good? We all right? Well, I just don't know. I don't want to do this thing. You chose wrong. He didn't say that, but that's what he's saying. That's why God got angry with him a little bit there. He was looking at him and said, you chose the wrong person. Well, God said, I know what I'm doing. I know you're weak. You know what? Great. I like weak things. Because then my character becomes more on display. You're weak? Good. People will see my strength. He can't speak? Well, great. Because the word, my word, stands on its own. You're a nobody? Well, great. Because you serve the God of the universe. That's why God chooses regular, ordinary people. And he makes you something by virtue of the fact that he called you, he chose you, he gave you an oath, and now he puts you in his purpose. Trust him and who he is. He will fulfill his promises in you. Don't rest your assurance on yourself. We're still works in progress, every single one of us. We will never, ever in this life be exactly like Christ. That'll happen the moment that Christ calls us home or he comes back, whichever comes first. And I'm looking forward to the time he comes back. I actually want to see him with my physical eyes. We wait for him. We hope for him. This is what we do. We cast our attention on him, not on us. You remember that, that song we sing, Blessed Assurance? Jesus 
is mine. Not blessed assurance, I'm praying the right prayers. <laughs> I'm doing the right things. No, it's on the person of God. One more though, one more point that God wants to make to get our assurance is that our hope of salvation is founded in the work of the high priest of God. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. The one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I won't spend any time on Melchizedek. In fact, we are in the middle of that, my BFG. So shameful plug, not shameless, shameful plug. <laughs> Come on out to my BFG if you would like to learn more about Melchizedek. He's an interesting character. We're actually walking through uh, appearances of Christ and types of Christ in the Old Testament. He's a big one. We're going to be in this one for a couple of weeks, actually. But what God is saying here is that the, that the hope that you put in is not in the work that you do. It's in the work that was done for you on behalf of the high priest of God, Jesus Christ. In fact, this is a point that the author of Hebrews has been making since chapter 4. He goes into chapter 4, especially verses 14 and 16. He starts talking about the Levitical priesthood and what they do. He goes into chapter 7 through 10, talking about why Jesus is a better high priest than human high priests. But what do priests do? Right? Priests stand as a mediator between the people and God. Right? So you had three offices in the Old Testament. You had prophet, you had priest, you had king. Okay? So the best way to demonstrate it, I suppose, is by, by an object lesson. Right? So let's just pretend that the screen is God and I am his prophet. So then I would stand facing you and speak the words of God for him to you. That's what a prophet would do. A priest, by contrast, now represents the people before God. So then I would turn and offer to God. You see the difference there? A little bit of difference there. So a priest then takes sacrifices, offers them to God in order to uh, for sacrifice for sin, the Levitical laws. This is what a priest does. He operates on behalf of the people toward God. He, offer, he offers sacrifices for sin. Now, before we really get into that too much, I want you to see, it says in verse 20, where Jesus entered as a, or no, sorry, verse 19, last line. And one who enters within the veil. Now remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew people who are well acquainted with the law of God. We might need a little bit of a primer, a little, little refresher course, if you will. When they were building the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the temple later on, you have this unique little place within it called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. God's presence was literally right there. But the problem was, there's this thick curtain that separated the presence of God from everybody else. And that veil was representative of the sins that would separate us from Almighty God. There was only one individual who could walk into the presence of God, and that was only one time a year, and that was the high priest. It was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, as they call it. And he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the nation as a whole, and he would walk into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God's Covenant was there, and he would pour the blood of the offering on the Ark. And then, thus, 
securing fellowship with God uh, for that year. But the interesting thing about that is that the priest had to wear these funny little robes that had jingle bells along the hem, the helm, it's like bells, but I call them jingle bells, but along the helm, the hem of his garment there. And they had a rope around his ankle. So he would go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain where no one else can be. And they had the bells there so they could hear if he died or not. They hear the bells, he's good. The bells clash and then stop, he's a goner. But we can't go in there to keep pull out the body so we take the rope and we yank that guy out from behind the garden do you see how serious god is about sin about his own holiness do you see how unholy that we are well jesus himself and pastor scott just preached this not long ago in uh, mark chapter 15 <clears throat> jesus sacrificed himself for sin and when he yelled it is finished the moment he breathed his last that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, God removed what separated us from his presence. It was his work. Jesus is the high priest of God. But what's so unique is that he's both the offerer and the offering. He's both. And he's better than a human priest because he doesn't die. He lives on forever. He stands interceding for us. I wish we had more time to go into this, but it's like, 12 chapters of devoted to priesthood and, and Hebrews. We don't have time to do that. But Jesus himself now stands there interceding for you. His ministry as a priest didn't stop when he was raised from the dead. It continues on forever. So he opened the way for you, that purpose of God. He shed his blood. He poured it out onto the altar of God. The veil was ripped open from top to bottom and now stands praying for you right this moment. Why are we putting our assurance in myself when Jesus did all of that? Seems kind of foolish now than when you think it in those terms. That's what this passage is talking about. Don't focus on yourself and your own works. Focus on what has been done already and who stands now representing you before God. Lord, I pray for Brian. You know how he is. But I know I died for him help him through this temptation. I know because it's part of our plan from eternity past that he's going to be conformed to my image, but he's going to go through some temptation coming up here. Help him through it. I know in this situation he's going to be weak, but I pray for his strength. Anoint him for this task. This is how, this, how God prays for us. Don't you want Jesus praying for you? That's a prayer that's always answered 100% of the time, all the time. And he stands there doing it for you right this moment. And it will not end. And it says that he's a forerunner. A forerunner goes before you, right? A forerunner? That means he expects you to go into the presence of God too. He did it first, so then you can do it also. Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Do you struggle with assurance today? Do you need the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Go boldly into the presence of God. Confess your doubts before him. But put your hope and the prom on the unchangeable promise. It's unbreakable. The unchangeable purpose His impeccable person. And the high priest who stands there doing this work for you. Focus your attention upon him and your assurance will be firm. It'll be, what does it say here? Both 
sure, and steadfast. And that rusty anchor that we've been using for our assurance breaks away and one that will not fail will be right there holding us down in the waves of doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you've given us in Scripture. I'm grateful, Lord, that you, you're not satisfied with us wallowing in a sea of doubt. But yet we sometimes find ourselves there, Lord. Help us in this. We need your strength. We need your guidance. We need your help to know when our focus is off of you and onto ourselves. And I know it's subtle. Lord, it is important that we work. Lord, you even said we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. You've said that works is always accompanied by genuine faith. But help us not to focus on the works, but on the one who worked. I pray for the people here, for the believers who may be struggling, that you would strengthen them. Give them that sure hope. For those who are unsaved, that are curious, that feel like they need hope and promise and something that will not fail, I would ask you, Lord, that you would give them the gift of faith to believe that they would call upon you and be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.